you to look at these two Psalms. We have Psalm 13 and Psalm 14. And by the way, this Psalm, the 13th, is given to express the feelings of those who have great trials. That should fit all of us, shouldn't it? Those who have great trials. And in the first two verses, we have David's complaint. And then in the last verses, we have David's prayer and actually his praise as well, but his prayer especially. So the first two verses, we find David's complaint. And he says, How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? Forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? Notice there's four times he says, How long? You notice in these two verses. How long wilt thou forget me? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long will I... Uh, shall I take counsel in my soul? How long uh, shall mine enemy be exalted over me? Sometimes we ask questions just about as foolish as those that David asked here. You know, God hadn't done any of these things. And sometimes our heart is like a musical instrument that gets out of tune. We're out of tune with God and we think that, uh, you know, God has forgotten us. Notice this. How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? Do you think God that remembers everything that's omniscient and omnipotent, all-seeing and all-knowing and all-powerful, uh, can ever forget anything that he does not purposely forget? He says one thing that he will forget, all our sins and iniquities. He said, I will remember no more. I'm glad he's forgotten that, aren't you? But anything else, he cannot forget us, yet we forget him. Jeremiah 2, verse 32, it says, Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. We forget God, but God does not forget us. Hebrews 13, 5 says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. If you would care to turn to Isaiah 49, and uh, we've quoted it many times and we've preached on it before, but Isaiah 49, if you will, uh, verses 15 and 16 says, Can a woman forget her sucking child that she should... Uh, not have compassion on the son of her womb. Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget thee. Even if a woman forget her sucking child, God says, yea, they may forget. And that's possible. It's very unlikely, isn't it? And it's very exceptional because nearly every mother loves that child of her womb and will not forget, even in spite of all the bad things that may happen. All the disagreements or all the turmoil or all the trials of life, they still love that child. And yet, God says, even, even so that's true. He says, yea, they may forget, yet, I, yet will I not forget thee. And he goes on in verse 16, and I'm preaching a message on this 16th verse. Behold, behold, I have graven thee upon the, upon the palms of my hands. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. He says, Thy walls are continually before me. Now then, we preached a message on graven upon the palms of his hands. It says, God has graven us, tooled into the palms of his hands. Our very being, he doesn't say, I've graven thy name, but I have graven thee, thy person, thine all. We are actually a part of God. He says, I've put you in my prints, in my hands, as if with a graving tool he has leaned upon that and put us in the palms of his hands. And so no wonder he can't forget. Constantly reminded, there it is. Uh, a part of the feeling of him, his very self, his very being, because graven there, there it is. How could he forget? And yet we're like the psalmist. And what did he say? 
How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? Forever? We may feel that we've been for, uh, forgotten, but God has not forgotten. And then another thing. He says, how long wilt thou hide thy face from me? We may think that God has deliberately turned against us and hidden his face. Psalm 88 verse 14 says, Lord, why castest why casteth off my soul? Why hideth thou thy face from me? Psalm 88 verse 14. We know that there's only one thing that causes God to hide his face at any time. And we read that in Isaiah chapter 59. It says in verse 2, Behold, your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. So there is a break of fellowship because of our sins from time to time. We wonder sometimes why God will not hear. He says, because of your sins. So when we repent, he's ready to hear again. And he always does hear. And so the reason that he uh, sometimes seems to be hidden is because we feel him hidden. And the reason we feel him hidden is usually because of sin. We wouldn't feel that way if we knew there was nothing standing between or nothing had broken fellowship. The Bible says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have what? Fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. So where there's a fellowship with God and walking in the light with God, we know that there's nothing that hides us from his face. And we know that that fellowship is not broken. And we know the blood of Christ has covered all of our sins. And then we see in verse 2, How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? And our own wisdom and our own thinking sometimes increases our sorrow. See, how long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? So when we take counsel without God's counsel and guidance, we increase that sorrow. And it says, uh, in my heart daily. Sometimes it it's best to think upon the things of God instead of think upon the things of self. Our wisdom and our thinking sometimes it just causes our sorrows to mount. When we turn to God's wisdom and God's thoughts, he says, my thoughts are above your thoughts. And the wisdom of God's word is above our wisdom. The, the world by wisdom knew not God. And so we don't solve our problem by our own uh, self, we, uh, our own wisdom and our own thinking. We come to our wits end many times. The Bible teaches that. And by the way, our extremity is God's opportunity to do something about it. Job said, Job 31 verse 35 says, Oh, that one would, uh, would hear me. Oh, that one would hear me. He says, Behold, my desire is that, this, is that the Almighty would hear me and answer me. Hear and answer me. That's my desire. And when uh, we look within ourselves, there's no answer to our problems and our trials and our questions. But when we look to God, there's the answer of everything. He has all the answers. We may even think that God is on the side of the enemy. Look at the last part of verse 2. He says, uh, How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Do you think that God's on the enemy's side? Now that's how far down we can fall in being depressed. And that's how far our complaint goes sometimes. That God is not for us. He's against the enemy. I mean, he's against us and for the enemy. Do you ever feel like that, you know, here's the enemy of God and of God's church and of God's people and of God's word. And we feel like God's on his side. Not at all. He never will be. But we get to feeling that way. And where's the wrong? The wrong is in our feeling. The wrong is in our complaint. The wrong is in our wisdom. And we think it's God's fault that 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 all this is happening. And it, we blame God for a lot of things. Lamentations. Let me read. Lamentations. 
And by the way, lamentations are just that. The lamentations of Jeremiah. He was lamenting in Lamentations 1 and verse 5 says this. Her adversaries are, are the chief. Her enemies prosper. For the Lord hath afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children are gone into captivity before the enemy. And that's the way we feel like a lot of times. Look. Her adversaries are the chief. Her enemies prosper. For the Lord hath afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children are gone into captivity before the enemy. And so the lamentations, sometimes we say that, well, God's on their side. God may be permitting all these things to happen, but He's still on our side and He will deliver us from the enemy in due time if we'll just trust Him. And the captivity may come, but that doesn't mean we'll always remain there. God is not on the enemy's side. The Bible says, if God be for us, who can be against us? So let's be on God's side and He will be on our side. Now then, let's notice beginning with verse 3, David's prayer. He says, Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. He says, Lighten mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Consider and hear me. David claimed the Lord is his God even in the time of grief. When you're grieving and when you're down, still make your claim upon God. Well, I don't feel like God's with me. Make your claim anyway. Because he really is. Our feelings feel like he's not. But God really is on our side. And that's what we need to keep in mind. That's faith. It lays hold upon the fact that God will never, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. The Lord is my helper. I shall not fear what man shall do unto me. You're bought with a price. You're not your own. And so you belong to God. And he's going to take care of you. Lest I cry, lest I sleep the sleep of death. The sleep of death and the cry of the psalmist was a desperate cry. Sometimes we come to a place of desperation in our lives and we just cry out, lest I sleep the sleep of death. We shouldn't worry about that as much as as we think. We ought to keep the eye of our faith upon God and watchfulness toward God and understanding the purpose of God and the plan of God. God's honor was at stake in verse 4. Look at this. Lest, my, lest mine enemies say I have prevailed against him and those that trouble me rejoice when I am moved. God's honor is at stake when, when we feel that he has forsaken us. We're saying that God is not faithful to keep us and to take care of us. And God is going to take care of us. Psalm 35, verse 19. Let me read this for you. In Psalm 35, in verse 19, it says, Let not them that are mine enemies wrongfully, wrongfully rejoice over me, neither let them wink the eye that hate me without a cause. In other words, is God going to justify those that wrongfully rejoice over us? Is He going to be on their side? No, He's going to maintain His honor and He's going to stand with those that, are, that belong to Him. So human beings and human feelings and human emotions are very frail. They just move ever with the wind, as the wind changes. Our lives are like that and our feelings are like that. And when trials come, we're like that. We just wonder, what in the world's happening? Say, how can this be? Surely God's against me. He's forgotten me. He's even on the side of the enemy. And He's going to let them rejoice over me. His justice is, is all out of kelter. He's not going to be just in taking up for my side. But God is. Because He's promised that He's going to take up for that which is right. 
and right shall triumph. Sometimes we feel that wrong is triumphing. And it may seem to be for a season, but it's not always going to be that way. And then he, then we find in verse uh, 5 that David's heart gets back in tune with, with uh, God. It's been out of tune, complaining all these things. And even in his prayer, uh, he was praying, lest I'm, mine enemies say that I have prevailed. But in verse 5, he says, but I have trusted in thy mercy. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. David, you're getting back on the right track now. Look at it. I have trusted in thy mercy. With all this turmoil in his life, with all of his complaint, with all of his lack of faith in prayer, still David turns right around and at some time or other, he, he says, God, he says, I've really trusted in your mercy anyway. So he's getting back in tune, isn't he? It's good to trust in the Lord. The Bible says, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. I'm sure that almost every one of us have gone through some of the turmoil that David went through right here. When things go wrong or when trials come and when problems arise that we don't know how to deal with, we feel a lot like David. Lord, how long? How long? How long? How long? Four times over in the first two verses. And look at the nature of those how longs we've already pointed out. Forgotten. God's face hidden. Take counsel in my soul. I can't figure it out. And then, mine enemy exalting over me, all those how longs? We've all felt a great deal of those, or maybe at least some of them. But he says in verse 5, But I have trusted in thy mercy. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. He knew that God was his deliverer. He knew that his salvation was in the Lord. And then in verse 6, David thanks the Lord for answered prayer. Notice, he says, I will sing unto the Lord because he hath dealt bountifully with me. He arises from all that complaint to prayer and then to praise. I will sing unto the Lord because he hath dealt bountifully with me. This psalm starts with complaining and ends with praise. It shows you the fluctuations and the, and the changing of, of our human hearts. We start out complaining and then when we get our confidence in God, we end up praising, don't we? That's a good way to end it. Instead of starting out praising and end up complaining, I'd rather have it the way David did. Do our complaining first and then do our praising at the end. Say, God has given us victory and it's his salvation that he's provided. Then we come to the 14th Psalm. And we call this the Psalm of the Practical Atheist. The Practical Atheist. That's what it says. It says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. Atheism is in the heart. The fool has said where? In his heart. There is no God. He doesn't want to admit any God. The fool. For a man to reject all the evidence of the supreme being is foolish. It's stupid, isn't it? And yet we have people that proclaim it. I mean, they have a society of atheists. They have a, a group of them all over the country. I think I told you of seeing on the CNN a report where there were uh, three ladies being questioned about certain things, prayer in school or something that was religious or morally right. And uh, two of them had smiles on their faces. They were happy. They were Christian people. And this one atheist was on there. And brother, I'm telling you, she was a young lady, probably maybe in her early 30s. And miserable, 
she had a frown on her face and it just looked like she could just beat the world up and it, she, the whole world was against her. And she was trying to promote atheism. And this other lady says, that's why you are so feel so bad because you don't believe anything, you know. It, it really it is. The fool has said in his, in his heart there is no God. When your heart is all in turmoil and you're fighting against God, there can be no happiness with anyone. It's just not there. You can manufacture all the pleasures and joys and riches and try to manufacture it in this life, and there's no way that you'll reach contentment and happiness and joy by leaving God out. And that's exactly what this lady was doing. I don't know how many of you saw that report, but it was, it was something else. And you could just tell by the countenance on people's faces who were Christians and who were not. Who was on the right side and on God's side and who was not. You don't even have to ask the question. If there had never been a question asked, you can tell by someone's demeanor. If they're just mad as all get out about everything, brother, they're just not going to be satisfied with anything. And they're mad at the world. They're mad at each other people. And they're mad at themselves even. And really they're mad at God. Because he wants them to surrender to him, turn to him, and they just are rebellious, self-willed. And it's, it's a sad state of affairs to be in. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It is certainly stupid to reject God. We might, we might be reminded of, uh, of the fool in, Matt, in uh, Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 12. Remember, we, I think we brought it up this morning in our Sunday school lesson. Let me read it for you. Luke chapter 12. In verse 16, And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. Now look at this. And he thought within himself. He thought like a fool. He thought within himself. It's foolish to think within yourself that you have the answer. Saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. Notice the personal pronoun. He thought within himself. You have a himself. What shall I, circle I, do? Because I, circle I again. I have no room where to bestow my, circle my, fruits. One, two, three, four, five times in that first, in that 17th verse. And then he said, verse 18, and he said, he said, first he thought and then he said, he said, this will I do. I will pull down my barns and will build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. How many times there? One, two, three, Four, five, six in the next verse. I and my. So first he thought like a fool, and then he sp- uh, talked like a fool. He said, he said. He thought within himself, and then he said. He, out- he uttered it outwardly. And then he said, in verse 19, And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then... Who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So, so is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That situation is. I have a little line in the bottom of my margin here. It says, first of all, four times a fool. God said he was a fool. God said, thou fool. Verse 20. He thought and talked like a fool. We gave you that in verse 17 and 18. And he walked like a fool. He left God out of all of his plans and he died like a fool cut off unexpectedly he was found to be unprepared and he prepared for everything in life but nothing for death that's a sad situation isn't it 
I'd rather be prepared for death in all of life. I try to prepare for life, but I'd rather be prepared to die than prepared to live. And I want to live, and I want to enjoy it. And God will give you that blessing along the way, but you make sure you're prepared for the time that you're not living. Because we're going to go out of this world one of these days, maybe sooner than we think. Brother Walker asked me if I planned on leaving. No, not till the Lord takes me home. That's only then. Brother, that's when I'm going. And then I'll be ready to answer the call. But he was back to Psalm 14. Notice he says in verse 1, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. And by the way, in our natural state, all of these things are applied to us because the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And even though we haven't outwardly said that there is no God, we profess to live as if there is no God in our natural condition before we accept the Lord. In fact, in Romans chapter 3, we find that all of these things are applied, Paul applies them to both Jews and Gentiles to prove that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3. You read it. It says, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand. You know, we, we find that... Uh, in verse uh, 1 again, they are corrupt, they have done abominable works, there is none that doeth good. A, cor- a corrupt heart produces a corrupt life. Said that, uh, by their fruits ye shall what? Know them. A corrupt heart produces a corrupt life. It says every tree, good tree bringeth forth what? Good fruit. And every corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. Let me read that for you. There's something else there. Romans, I mean in Matthew chapter uh, Matthew chapter 7. Let me read it for you. In verse 16, you know, you shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Do you expect to get uh, grapes off of thorns or, you, or figs off of thistles? You do. You're expecting something unreasonable, aren't you? You go out there to the thorn bush and expect to take some, uh, gather up some grapes. You're going to be mighty fooled. I have, I have another sermon on expecting the unreasonable, expecting the unreasonable. And then it says, "Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit." And so we find that it's just natural for a tree to bring, bring forth what kind of fruit it's to bear. Okay, let's get back to this psalm. They're barren of good works. Notice verse 1 again. It says, they have done abominable works. About Psalm 14. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. They not, not only have a corrupt life, a corrupt heart produces a corrupt life, but they are barren of good works. There is none righteous, no, not one. And then, verses 2 and 3, let's see. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. And Paul quotes these things in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, to prove that, the, that all of us are sinners. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20, There's not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Well, now, if there's not a just man, think about the man, men that are not just. 
when he says, There is not a just man that doeth good and sinneth not. Certainly we know that if there's an unjust man, he doeth he, he cannot do good and, and not sin. Ecclesiastes says there's not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. So we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then we find that uh, it says, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek after God. That's the message. The Lord looked down. He looked down and he sees all that's going on. By the way, if uh, some of you preachers out there want to copy down a sermon now and then, I've got several included. I had one on the rich man, and now I've got you another one. But it's not my responsibility to copy them down. I'm just to give them to you, right? The Lord looked down. The Lord came down. The Lord lay down. The Lord sat down. And Jesus is coming down. He looked down from heaven, and he sees what the children of men are doing. He came down from heaven. The Son of Man came down from heaven to seek and to save that which was lost. He says, I lay down my life for my sheep. And he did on the cross of Calvary. And the Bible says he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And we believe Jesus is coming down again and to receive us to himself. And then he's coming down to live and to rule and to reign upon this earth. We find that the Lord sees us and he knows what's going on. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek after God and seek God. And by the way, God seeks us and we have not sought after him. That's the terrible thing about it, isn't it? They are all, uh, see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They were without knowledge and not seek God. They're all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Look, have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? They're without knowledge, aren't they? Eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord. If you do not think in the, think of the depravity of man, I suggest we read Romans chapter 1. For anyone that does not believe in the total depravity of man, read the first chapter of the book of Romans. By the way, we'll find there in Romans chapter 1 that it says in verse 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. God will not save the fool against his will. It says when a man refuses to retain God in his knowledge, it says, look, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, they wanted him out of their mind, a mind uh, to acknowledge God. He turns them over to a reprobate mind. That means a mind void of judgment. Any mind that is without knowledge is void of judgment. And any mind that does not want God in its, in its uh, mind or thought is void of knowledge. He's void of understanding. He's stupid. God gave them over. What did God do? Say, no, come on, I'm going to save you in spite of your rejection, in spite of your atheistic views, in spite of your unbelief. He says, it says God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. And that's just one portion of Romans chapter 1. We could read the whole thing and expound it. We won't have time. But you look in that first chapter of the book of Romans, you'll find how men have treated God in times past and how they're doing him today. And it's, it's very much like we find a, a bulk of society today, even in our own nation. And that's what's so sad. Even in this so-called Christian nation, we find that 
It's full of atheists. It's full of unbelievers. It's full of ungodly. It's full of uh, abominable practices. It's full of things that are disgrace to, to Almighty God. And the people that are rejecting God after this manner, God will finally turn them over. God loves sinners and He wants to save them, but not against their will. And God will finally turn them over to a reprobate mind, a mind void of judgment and understanding. And let them believe a lie that they all might be condemned or damned who receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. You'll find that in, I believe, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. God will finally do that. There used to be a little line that goes like this. It says, there is, there is a line unseen by men. Uh, let's see. There is a line unseen by men. Resurrect the thought. It's the hidden boundary between God's patience and His wrath. So there's a line that they cross that line, and it's a boundary that men cross between God's patience and God's wrath. He's going to have to finally judge. And I didn't quote all of it. There's another little line that goes in there to make more sense of it. But finally, we cross God's deadline. And uh, that's what happened to these people. The fool that continues on his way... Uh, Psalm 14, verse 4 again. Look, have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord? So they're without knowledge. There were they in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. They not only hate God, but they hate God's people. Verse 4, they eat up my people, they call not upon the Lord. Verse 5, they were in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. Sometimes the wicked hate uh, God's people, and yet they prove to be uh, cowards. They know that God is not going to be with them. They were in great fear. There were they in great fear. Verse 28, verse 1 says, The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. The wicked flee because they know they're wrong. Why does a man run away? Because he knows he should run. When you find people running, there's a reason for it. You don't run away if you're in the right. Do You run away if you're in the wrong and need to flee in the dark and get out of the way and get away from the uh, scene of the crime. That's why they run. You ever watch these uh, police reports and they have the up-to-date ones now on... Uh, television where they're showing different aspects of the police work in various cities and you'll see them out and usually they're chasing some fellow across the bushes and in the dark and he's just robbed a house or something why is he running you know why he's running and sometimes they flee when no man pursueth and makes cowards of people so you're in the right you can stand up before men and look them square in the eye tell them the truth can't you you know the judges, you know what they do when they look out there at the accused? They look at his demeanor and they look at his eyes and they say, well, you know, turn your head here and there and boy, you get sheepish and you get to where you don't want to face the judge. Something wrong. You look him square in the eyes, say, I didn't do that. I'm not guilty. He just might cannot tell whether you're not or whether you are. Being it's foolproof, nothing is. But it does mean that there's an indication as Randy said about Moses slaying the Egyptian. What happened? He looked this way and that. Right? He looked this way and that. 
that you had done something you shouldn't have done. Mentioned it this morning after the Sunday school class. We taught back in Sunday school. And then let's look at verse 6. It says, You have shammed the counsel of the poor because the Lord is his refuge. The Lord is the refuge of the poor. In the book of James, and let me give you this quickly, our time is about gone. In the book of James chapter 5, uh, beginning with verse uh, 4 through 6, it says, Behold the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. The labor that works in the fields, and the rich man keeps it back, kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Seboah. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth, and and been wanton, ye have nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. That's what the uh, wicked do that persecute the poor, take advantage of the poor. In the Old Testament, the Bible taught that it, at the end of each day, the man was to receive his wages so he could go home with his money, with his pay. I mean, his, every day was payday under the law of Moses. He didn't pay a week at a time or a month at a time. Brother, when he worked all day, he needed that money or whatever his pay was, reward was, to go home and provide for his family. He said it wasn't to remain in your house overnight. You were supposed to give it to him at the end of the day. Those that persecute, he says, because the Lord is his refuge. Back in our psalm now. We're just about through. The last verse. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion, when the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people... Jacob shall rejoice and Israel shall be glad. The hope of God's people. What is the hope of God's people? All wars and all oppression will end when Jesus returns. The Lord comes out of Zion. It's not only for Israel. The hope, this is the hope of the world. This is the hope of the nation of Israel. This is the hope of all the saints of God. The desire of nations shall come. And that's when the Lord returns. And when he sets up a kingdom of righteousness and peace... And the knowledge of the Lord shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And there will never be that as long as, as men are in rule. But it will only be that when Jesus comes and he rules and reigns. And as long as you have men with wicked hearts, there's going to be crime and wars and oppression and turmoil. And all this is going to go on. But when Jesus comes again, he's going to set everything right. I'm thankful that we have the promise and the hope and the assurance of Christ's coming, aren't you? Because He's going to change things and make them as they ought to be. He's going to balance the scales and make things right. And that's all of our hope. That's Israel's hope. That's the world's hope.